we will stand as children of the promise, fixing our eyes on you. Run the race that is before us, completing the work that you've given to us. Oh, Lord God, thank you for faith. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in such a way that we could respond to you, that we could know you, that we could serve you. God, earlier we sang that your name would be magnified. And we recognize and realize that you are far more than anything we could ever begin to imagine or even begin to conceive. And so as we pray that you would be magnified, we realize you can't become any bigger, but that you could become bigger in our lives. You can be magnified in our lives. And God, I pray that that would be the case. I pray as we're here together, gathered in this place for the purpose of lifting up your name and declaring how amazing and awesome you are, that it would stir in our hearts a new awareness of that and that you would be magnified in our lives, that you would be greater than anything else in our life that everything else would fall into the proportion it belongs to so that we could declare your greatness. Oh God, now as we turn our attention to your word, oh, guard us from clutter and distractions that would keep us from hearing from you. Speak into our lives with great power, Lord. Help us to go from this place changed because we've been in your presence, because we've heard your word. Speak, Lord. Your children are listening, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to be seated, even as I release the kids through grade four. Get myself adjusted here. It's good to be back. I've been gone for a couple of weeks, and it's good to be back, but it's even better to have Inspiration Ministries back. Woohoo! So all our friends are back from IM, and it's been since March of last year since they've been able to come out and come to worship, so we're so glad that you guys are with us. So I'm, um, I'm glad to be back, and thank you for praying for us. Went to Tennessee with some, some friends from the church here and some guys, and we just set aside time to seek the Lord and to... Uh, to go to a Sabbath and, and to be able to pull away from technology and from those things that cause so much clutter and distraction in our lives and just pull away and, and learn again what it means to hear the voice of God. And uh, we used a guidebook that was written by this pastor guy who just loves to meddle, and, and um, so it was really a significant encounter for each one of us. One of the things that, that I came away with is you may not be able to tell this by looking at me, but I'm not, um, I'm not really all that interested in physical activity. Um, it doesn't have to be that funny. But anyway, um, I, uh, I realized that, you know, going back, I, I think of, it was, I think, first grade when they had the uh, president's fitness torture does anybody remember that? Um, and, and, and so it was at that point in time that, that I really came face to face with the fact that, that for whatever reason, that the way that God has wired me, I'm not necessarily the person who's going to take part in physical activity because even at that age, I remember being taken to the rope of shame 
the, the rope of shame which, which was in the center of the gym and everybody would surround you so it would be kind of this type, type of setting here where you can imagine that there's a rope that's about twice as high as the ceiling here and, and you're a first grader and you've got to climb that rope. No pressure. Yeah, so I thought, well, that's good. Yeah, let's do physical activity. And then there was this 600 thing. I don't know what it was, 600 meters or, or miles or something. And you used to have to run around the whole outside of the school property. And I remember as, as, a, as a first grader running and realizing that I was never going to make the finish line because it kept moving. Every time I turned around, the finish line was farther away, and I didn't realize how could that happen. And so I realized that I have just not, and I know there's some of you who are very physically active, and the way that God's wired you, that's an important part of your life. But even as I pondered that and thought about that as I was away for that time of Sabbath, the Lord revealed to me that there's something that's been going on in my life that's a little bit different. We're looking at this journey to completion and what does it mean to stay alive is what we're looking at today. The idea that the journey to completion is a, a journey of staying alive. And I realized it was eight years ago in August that I was diagnosed with a slow-growing incurable cancer. And so eight years ago, as I shared that with all of you and I began the process of the healing, there was a finish line that was put out there. And that finish line was seven to 12 years. And some of you who may have had a terminal diagnosis know what that means. And, and so now all of a sudden there was a, a finish line. And so I went through the treatments and, and the symptoms went away and it seemingly was at a place where I was going to be okay. And so um, had the port taken out. And, and then four years ago in August, it flared up again. And I ended up back in treatment. And so here I am again with the finish line in sight. And then a year and a half ago, coming to a point where after much prayer and the doctor said to me that the cancer's not there. They can't find it. And so it seems to be gone. And all of a sudden, in a way, there was a flashback to being that first grader and seeing the finish line move away. Because if you know me, you know that I, I can't wait to see Jesus. I can't wait. I am, I am looking so forward to, to seeing Jesus and Sue. I remember one of the sweetest moments in my life was when, when your dad passed and your mom was there and she was holding his hand. And she looked at me and she said, I want him to come back. I want him to tell me what he saw. Because he would always come back and tell your mom what, she, what he had seen. And I think for me, I realized to live is Christ, but to die is gain, you see. 
And so in some ways, what I've been wrestling through for this past year or so is trying to get used to the fact that the finish line has moved and that I'm going to stay alive. And I know, even as I share that, and I've really been praying over whether or not to share it because it's, it's really kind of weird, I think, in a way. But isn't that the truth, that we allow ourselves to get distracted by things that are weird? I mean, each one of us, there's something in each one of our lives, I believe, that distracts us from staying alive, that distracts us from having the type of faith that God has designed for us to have, a living faith that allows us to make the most of every moment for him. And what I've realized as I went away and spent some time and really sought the Lord for what's really going on here, as he put the finger on that and revealed that to me, I, I of course said, Lord, I'm sorry. I've been, I've been disengaged here in a way. And he said, that's okay. Let's get, let's get with it. So here we are, the next passage that we're looking at. The next passage that we're looking at is, is in James chapter 2. And in James chapter 2, we're going to see how this journey to completion is carried on, but it requires that we stay alive. It requires that we stay alive. It requires that we, we step into a living faith. And this living faith is what allows us to do that which God has designed for us to do. A living faith is not dead. A living faith is not dead. And you could say to yourself, of course. But it's really what James talks about here. In chapter 2, verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So there's this thought process that a living faith, a faith that causes us to live for the Lord, is a faith that's not dead. And so there's two types of faith, a living faith and a dead faith. And a dead faith is not a faith that can save. And so we need to ask ourselves, what is a living faith? Paul tells us to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. So what is a living faith? In some ways, if we look at the verse right before this that Larry opened up for us a couple of weeks ago, it says mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And as we consider that, we see that it's mercy that brings this living faith into our lives. When we stop and pause to ask ourselves what exactly is the mercy that triumphs over judgment. I think of the parable that Jesus told of the, the Pharisee and the, uh, the tax collector who both went off to pray. And the Pharisee offered all these prayers of how great he was and, and how glad he was that he wasn't like other people. 
And then the tax collector went off all by himself and pounded on his chest and said, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, he was the one who was justified. He was the one who had triumphed over judgment, if you will. That mercy, coming to a place where we realize and recognize every moment of our lives, that's a prayer that needs to be prayed. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. To have a living faith is to come to a place in your life where you realize and recognize that anything you choose apart from following God, anything you choose apart from obedience to God is sin. And it's sin that needs and requires repentance. In many ways, every moment of the day, we need to be praying that prayer. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because every part of our lives have been impacted by sin. It's not that we're as bad as we could be, but it is that every part of our lives have been impacted by sin. And every thought that we have, everything that we do, is impacted by that. And we are constantly in need of the mercy of God. But the amazing thing is, is as we step into the mercy of God, as we begin to embrace the mercy of God, we begin to embrace the liberty that comes from being set free from the judgment of God. At the core of who we are, we understand that our sin brings us under the judgment of God. We realize and recognize that at some level within us. And we realize that as we turn to God and we say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and God does, he responds in mercy, we realize that we've been set free from the weight of sin. We've been set free from the guilt of sin. We've been set free from the shame of sin. We have been set free from the burden of sin. Amen? And that freedom that comes into us reveals itself in this living faith. It's a faith that's alive within us. It's a faith that has changed us and has made us someone different. And what it does is it changes the way that we view the world. It changes the way we see the circumstances that are happening around us. And so as we live and move and have our being in this world, in the place where God has put us right at this moment in time, and we begin to wander by people who are in deep need, the last thing we say is, God bless you. We say, God bless you, how can I help? And we step in and we see where are the places that we can do that. Because a living faith is an active faith. It's not the kind of faith that makes you feel good about yourself or better than others. It's not just a faith that makes you feel good about yourself or better than others. A lot of times, maybe some of you have experienced this. Maybe the way that you have come to what you believe is faith in your life is that somebody has come up to you and said, do you want to go to heaven or hell when you die? And you've weighed that out and thought, yeah, heaven's probably better. Let's do that. And so they said, well, say this prayer and you're in. And there's been no change in your life at all. There's been no exchange. There's no exchange of your life of sin for God's life of righteousness. And there's no change that's happened in your life. Could I say to you, maybe you don't have a living faith. Maybe what you have is something that has caused you to feel good. Or maybe you can look and say, well, I know, I'm, I, know I don't act any different than that person, but I've, I've, I said that prayer, so I'm good. 
See, and James won't allow us to believe that that's a type of faith that's a saving faith. See, the type of faith that's a saving faith is when you come to the Lord and you realize and recognize that apart from him, you're lost, you're dead, spiritually dead. And you come to him and you say, God, I know I'm a sinner and I know that I'm worthy of any, any sort of judgment that comes on me, but I just throw myself at your feet and I ask that you would come and rescue me. I ask that you would save me. I ask that you would allow the death of Jesus to pay the death penalty I owe, but even more, Lord, come and take control of my life. Overwhelm me with your presence. And at that moment in time, God comes into your life and you are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come and you begin to live a different life. And a living faith reveals itself in that changed life. So a living faith is not a dead faith. The journey to completion requires staying alive. And so much of what that involves is, a, <clears throat> is, is this idea of moving from faith being what I believe in my head to faith being the very core of who I am. That journey to completion is a very short journey, really. It's a journey from this acknowledgement of God, and it's a, a, a a movement into a place where at the very core of who you are, you realize that your very essence is dependent upon God. And everything about you relies on him. And so a living faith speaks for itself through works. It's not that works save you, but it's that a living faith speaks for itself through works. Works are the defining characteristic of a living faith. Someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. I remember really well when I first heard this verse and, and first began to take hold of this verse. And I think it was probably, surely when we were in the basement of the library over in Williams Bay in high school and we were going through the, the study of James, will the real phony please stand up? And, and this verse that even the demons believe and shudder. See, demons are fallen angels. Demons are angels which were with God and rebelled against God and were expelled from heaven. So angels have been in the presence of God in some way, shape, or form. Demons have been in the presence of God and have seen God for who he is. They know that he's one. Think of the times when Jesus was walking on the earth and encountered demons, and how did the demons respond to him? Right, in great fear, in great trembling. They believed that he was God, but that belief made no difference for them. And some people have this belief in God that's like a demon's belief. It's a belief, again, it's a faith that hasn't changed their lives. It's just an acknowledgement that, that somehow God is, is Jesus is who he says he is, but it's not a changing faith. James says, I will show you my faith by my works. I'll show you my faith by my works. When Jesus met the Samaritan woman, the account that's found in John chapter 4, John chapter 4, 
And as Jesus had the encounter with the Samaritan woman and revealed to her that he was the living water. And as he continued to speak with her and she left, the disciples came back. And in verse 31, it says this, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. (laughs) But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? I often think, what would it be like to walk with Jesus? And, and you know, he, he would always say these things. It's just amazing. And then he would bring them back around. He said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Jesus' food was to do the work of God to do the will of God and accomplish his work. Same word as, as what, what James uses here. It was the very nourishment of Jesus. It was his, that which sustained him, his daily intake. It was his food. It became what he relied on for his sustenance for that day, was to do the work of God. And in that, he leaves us an example that we should be at a place where where what we're longing for is that the will of God, the work that he's given us to do, would be the food that we have. As he goes on, he says, do you not say there are four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest as he talks about what is the will of God for his life and what is his food, his food is to look up and seek and save those who are lost. And so the work that God has given us to do is the work to look up and see what is the work of God that he's calling us to in, his, in our lives. In Ephesians 2, it says, for grace, by grace you've been saved, through faith, and this not your doing, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we understand and know what we're talking about here is not that somehow we're trying to earn God's favor. We can't. We, we can't. And, and we realize that whatever we do will still allow us to feel very short of the place that God has for us. But yet, by grace, through faith, we are able to be saved. And we can be rescued, and we can be redeemed, and we can be ransomed, and we can be forgiven, and we can be new creations. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. See, here's what it means to be a new creation. This new creation that we become is the workmanship of God. You become his poetry, if you will. And it says that you were created in Christ Jesus for good works. The reason you've been rescued, the reason you've been saved, the reason you've been ransomed, the reason you've been redeemed, the reason that you've been set free is so that you can do good works. The works that God has prepared beforehand for you to do. Each one of us has something that God has prepared for us to do. In the end of Colossians, it says, tell Archippus, complete the work you have received in the Lord. See, you've received work to do from God. And it's not the work I've received. It's the work you've received. We 
have received this work that as we all work together to do the things that God has given us to do, we are able to make his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, answering the prayer that we offer to him. There's a key part about this. This is prepared for us to do. Karen teaches first and second grade Sunday school. And so she will work hard. Sometimes I help, although not much. But she will work hard to prepare things for those kids to do while they're in Sunday school so that they can do the work that they need to do. And so a lot of you who are first and second grade parents, maybe you get things that come home, and those are things that Karen has prepared. They're things that they wouldn't be able to do if Karen hadn't prepared them. You have work to do. You have things to do, and your living faith will reveal itself as you walk with God so closely that you begin to see those works that he's prepared for you to do, and you take the steps forward to do those things. And each one of those things are things that proclaim and declare his majesty and his glory and his goodness. And he's given you those things to do. Now, the interesting thing is, this past year, it's been, it's been um, a, a tough year, right? And, and we've been wrestling with this idea of, of what does it mean to really meet together? And, and there's been a verse in, in Hebrews that I've heard a lot of people talking about, not neglecting, Hebrews 10.25, not neglecting to meet together is, is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And so there's been this wrestle with what does it mean to meet together? And, and we've been celebrating the fact, even as we celebrate the fact that our friends from Inspiration Ministries are here with us, and we celebrate that a lot of us can be together, we recognize there's still a lot of people who are joining online, and we're excited about that, and so glad that you're able to do that. <laughs> but I know that it's been a concern for some of how can we really do this if we're not meeting together? Could I ask that we take a moment right now and put that verse into context? Because it's very apropos to what we're looking at. As we put it in context, we begin in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. I'm in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. For he who promised is faithful. And verse 24. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Love and good works. The same word, works. So as we look at this, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, a new creation for good works. And what we're supposed to be doing as the church is provoking each other to do those good works, to love and do those works. Now that's fascinating. I don't know about you, but Karen could probably give testimony that I'm pretty good at provoking things. That, that idea of provoke, stir up, help people get excited. See, we come together to rub up against each other, and as we come together, we bring our worship of God during the week that we have, and we bring that in here, and then we mix it with all the other worship, and we lift up this amazing praise to God that we call corporate worship. It's this unbelievable, beautiful moment in time where we declare that God is God alone is worthy of our worship, and, and the other 167 hours a week, everything is trying to tear us away from that, but here in this hour, we come together, and, and we, we lift 
lift that up and it, and it, it moves in our lives. And, and my heart and my prayer is that in each one of us as we experience that, we begin to experience what it means to be provoked to do the good works that God has prepared for us. And maybe we even start poking each other in the chest and saying, hey, how's, how's it going? How's your, how's your devotion life? How, how are you doing with Jesus? What, is it, what does it look like for you? Have you been telling anybody about Jesus? Is there someone that you're investing in? How are you reaching? And how are you doing the works that God has prepared for you? The final thing we see as we look at this journey to completion that requires staying alive. A living faith isn't dead, so you need to check yourself. Do you have a living faith? Secondly, a living faith speaks for itself through works. Do you have the works that are a clear indication that you do have that living faith? Thirdly, a living faith is yearning to obey, whatever the cost. A living faith is yearning to obey, whatever the cost. A living faith is ready to sacrifice for God. And we see the example of Abraham and Rahab. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? See, when we stop and think about this, this account, and we've looked at this several times in the past, this account of Abraham, God saying to Abraham, I need you to sacrifice your son Isaac. And Abraham following in obedience and taking Isaac up and getting prepared to offer him on the altar and God providing a substitute sacrifice. But Abraham was yearning to obey. He was yearning to obey God, even to the point of sacrificing his son. So you see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his work. Here we are, the journey to completion. It's this journey to completion that James talks about throughout this letter. And here we see that faith is completed by our works. There's a completion that comes to our faith as we continue to do the works that God has prepared for us. As we continue to seek what those are, as we hit the, hit the floor of the morning out of bed and saying, okay, Lord, what have you prepared for me today? Let's get at it. And as you begin to look at what does it mean to be able to do that, what that requires is sacrificing so many of the distractions that are in our lives. See, there are all these distractions that take us away from what it means to live for Jesus. And, and that finish line keeps moving. And we think we have more time. But we don't. The works that God has prepared for you to do today need to be done today. They can't be done later. And so many times, the works of God in your life that need to be done today are the works that then build you up to the place where you can do the works that he has for you tomorrow. And that's what we see in Abraham's life. As he yearned to obey God, and as his faith grew more and more and more, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. See, as you yearn to obey, as you long to obey, as you sacrificially serve and you grow in your understanding of who God is and the unbelievable freedom that comes into your life by living under the truth that, oh God, 
have mercy on me, a sinner. And you begin to experience that liberty and that freedom. You begin to live within that. You're a friend of God. You're walking with him in intimacy and closeness. And then you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Because a faith that hasn't changed you is a faith that is dead. A faith that hasn't changed you is a faith that doesn't have the works to show that that faith is alive and living and active and vibrant. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The body apart from the spirit is dead. And this is hard. For me, I'd love to be able to take my mom out there and take a picture of her by the photo booth, but that's not possible because my mom is in the presence of Jesus, absent with the Lord, or absent from the body, present with the Lord. But I remember being by my mom when she passed. And we were reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. The things that we see with the eyes of our heart are eternal. If this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we know that we have a home in heaven not made by human hands. And as I read that, my, my mom stepped into glory. And I know some of you have experienced that same thing where you've been by the side of someone when that happens and it's hard. There's nothing harder than walking that path. But the spirit of my mom at that moment in time left and jumped into the arms of Jesus. And the shell that was left was not the same. It no longer housed herself. Her soul was with Jesus, and she was vibrant and more alive than ever. And that's hard. But the truth is, some of our faiths are like that. Some of our faiths do not have the spirit in them. They're a dead faith. They're a faith that isn't vibrant and isn't alive. It's a faith that pretends to be alive. And James says, it's not a living faith. In Acts chapter 20, verse 24, in the King James Version, it says, none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, that I might finish my course with joy, and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace of God the ministry of that. This is my life verse in the Bible my mom gave me in 1971. This is underlined, it's written down, it's highlighted that this is the call that I felt God had on my life. It took me a long time to get there, but to come to that place where I realized that. 
And what I realized as I was away at the Sabbath retreat is that I'd actually started living it out the way it is in the NIV. And in the NIV, it's translated, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given me, the task of testifying the good news of Jesus, of God's grace. And the difference you see is the way that the word is translated, ministry or task. And somewhere along the line in this last year as everything has happened, part of me has begun to think of this as a task instead of a ministry. And so I confess that to the Lord. But you see, the difference is this. We don't have to do the work of the Lord. If you have a living faith, you don't have to do the work of the Lord. You get to. It's a ministry. You've been entrusted with it. Ministry means serve. It's that same word that we get deacon and deaconess from. It's this idea of how can I serve? How can I help? What can I do? How can I serve you, God? How can I serve you? How can I be? How can I love? How can I provoke you to love and to do good works? How can you provoke me to that? How can we be doing this? We don't have to do this. We get to do this. See, we don't bear the weight of sin. We don't lay our head down at night and wonder how we could ever possibly be forgiven for the things that we've done. We know that we are. We know that we've been forgiven. We have the load lifted off of us. And I know that you get this. I know that you understand this. I know that a lot of you live in this amazing joy and this vibrant and living faith. But listen, we get to do the work that the Lord has prepared for us. We don't have to do it. We get to. And the work that he's given us is impossible for us to do apart from the Holy Spirit who he's also given us. If only I might finish my course. This is the same word that's translated in 2 Timothy 4.7 as race. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. So there it is, the finish line. It's moving. Yeah, it moves. But it's at the exact place that God knows it's to be for you. And the joy we have is to run the race in such a way as to win. To run the race in such a way that we win. So what? Are you staying alive in your faith? And how is that evident in your life? Do you have a living faith? Oh, I pray you do. I pray you have a faith that's living and vibrant. And if you do, boy, let's get with it. And if you don't, get it. Get the living faith. Come to a place where you can release your sin and experience the forgiveness of God where you can release control of your life to him and let him control your life, leading you in the absolute best way. Lord God, how we thank you and praise you for who you are. You are an amazing God to offer forgiveness. You are an amazing God to give us faith, a living faith, a vibrant faith, a faith that proclaims you. Thank you for the work you've prepared for us. Forgive us, God. Search us, O Lord. Know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in us. Lord, is there any way in which we, we haven't been doing the work you've prepared in us? Lead us in the way everlasting. Help us to get busy. 
Help us to get about this, that we can declare the beauty and the glory of who you are, that we can reach back and help others know who you are and how to grow in their love for you. For your glory, and in your name we pray this, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. May I please ask you to stand and hear God's good word for you. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you for doing everything in his will, and may he work in us that which is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Oh, man, I love you guys, and I'm so excited to be on this journey with you as we look to complete our race. I release you to a week of work, witness, and worship. God bless.